Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 77. I'm Emily Singer. And I'm Michelle Graham. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned into the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show and pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we take it into our hands and rip it to pieces and put it in a blender. And then we pour it into a cup and we take it out of the blender in the cup. And then we turn it into... Literary, Literary gold. gold. <laughs> so, so this is kind of like cocktail meets story workshopping. Then, of course, can we can we flip the blender behind our backs and have <laughs> the Beach Boys playing in the background? You know, if you don't do that, it just won't be the same. It's wrong. Exactly. exactly. Very wrong. <laughs> My sentence. There's no other exactly. way to get this gold. It's part <laughs> of the ceremony. You got to shake your mojo, kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle Emily of the Beyond the Trope podcast. Thank you so much. The the 20 minutes with was a delight. You guys brought some seriously awesome questions to the table. And uh, I, I am intrigued and delighted to continue the awesomeness with you now. Thanks for making the time. Of course. Thanks for having us on. Our pleasure. Again. Uh, indeed. <laughs> and and let, let's continue. Let's, let's just roll that bad boy forward. Let's bring our guest host back on. Returning from a delightful 20 minutes with of just seven days ago. Now flush with the delight of having his book emerged into the world. Buried under the hail of accolades and 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 fan mail and movie offers, I can only imagine what mayhem and froth is going on in his life right now. Peter Newman returning to the big chair, sir. Thank you so much. Amid the wonder of your book debut, uh, the fact that you made time for the roundtable means a lot to us. So thank you, sir. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, of course, this is the magic of podcasting. The book hasn't actually released at this time. We're projecting forward in time, anticipating all of the delights and wonders. Uh, uh, but Peter, I, I can only, I, I know that this particular event is commanding your attention, but I, but cast your eyes for, definitely speak to us of, of this wonderful thing that has come out into the world. Uh, but, but, but even farther than that, weeks, months out ahead, what's, what's coming up in the world of Peter? Newman. There, there is no ahead or beyond. <laughs> there, there, it's just the, the eternal now, right? <laughs> according to my diary, there are a few things going on. So uh, let's see. There's various conventions that I'll be appearing at later in the year. Uh, there's the Nine Worlds convention, which is a fabulous, fabulous convention full of cosplay Ooh. and uh, and other wonders. <laughs> Books and films and water dancing workshops. And water dancing. Yeah, from Game of Thrones. It is. It is the most amazing, uh, inclusive, safe convention space. It's a wonderful thing. Wow. Uh, and it's only in its third year, but it's a very, very impressive convention. Uh, so I'll be going there. Um, I'm going to be going to Bristol Con later in the year, which is a small but perfectly formed convention. I will also be going to Octacon in Dublin, in Ireland, uh, where Emma, my wife, is a guest of honour. Ooh, awesome. So we're going to get uh, flown out over there for that, which will be absolutely wonderful. There'll be lots of tea in Jeopardy coming up in the future as well. 
and my uh, future otherwise is going to be occupied with things like edits and, <laughs> and, well, and other such business. Well, all of these conventions that you're going to, I'm sure there's going to be something in your hand that you're going to be showcasing at these conventions. Would you tell us just a little bit about this this remarkable thing? Yeah, well, I'd be delighted. <laughs> the, the thing... The thing that I will be talking about there is the thing that is uh, being published, which is The Vagrant, which is my debut novel, which is coming out with Harper Voyager and is a sci-fi fantasy, which is all about a silent protagonist carrying humanity's last hope across a war-torn, far-future landscape, which has just suffered a demonic apocalypse. Uh, And it features various things like demon knights, Singing swords, a baby, and a badass goat. And a badass goat. See, at which point everybody just says, shut up and take my money. <laughs> That's fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. In fact, in, in, in my, in my uh, uh, we have a writing group for, for the Roundtable podcast, the, the Rotano Rimo, the Roundtable Writing Month. And, and somehow, some way, I, I, I blame Katerina Bourdais, uh, uh, the goat has become the mascot of that writing group. So the fact that there is a badass goat in The Vagrant pretty much means there's probably about 150 people going to be buying that book just so we can quote and reference the badass goat. That's fabulous, Peter. And if it helps in the book, the goat is called the goat as well. Ah, well, (laughs) you agonized over that name, didn't you? It was a long process. (laughs) So so you're working on the sequel to The Vagrant? Yeah, so the sequel is actually already drafted and uh, it's been to my agent and had edits. The edits have been done and it's now with my editor. And I'm waiting Wow! Sort of mild terror but also anticipation <laughs> to see what she says about it. <laughs> That's all. That was a fast turnaround. Now, it took you a while to write The Vagrant. It didn't take you that long to write the sequel, did it? Well, when I was waiting to find out what was going to happen with The Vagrant, uh, I started writing the sequel. Following your own advice. Yes, yes I <laughs> say it, I also do it. And I, and I, I was writing every day. Um, it probably took about six months, I suppose, uh, to draft out. And it's obviously had some, some kind of going over and edits since then, so it's been a slightly longer process. But yeah, I mean, it was faster than The Vagrant in that I already had the world. Sure. Sure, and the characters, at least the framing characters. Yeah, that's right. There was so there are recurring characters in the sequel, and there are there are also new characters. But it was it was much easier when you're moving on with something. And some of those ideas have been gestating in my brain all the way. <laughs> and the sequel is called The Malice. Is that correct? Well, that is its working title. It's not its confirmed. Ah. Okay. Apparently, there's some other really good books called The Malice out there, so we'll have to see. Okay, good point. Good point. You want to do stand out somewhat on the on the bookshelves as it goes. How many books do you see in the series? Well, that all depends on you guys. Oh, <laughs> here it is. <laughs> I would say, I mean, The Vagrant is a self-contained story, and the sequel, it's kind of like the legacy of The Vagrant, but it also has its own arc. Um, but there is still a greater arc that if if the public wanted it, I would be very happy to write. So I would say three to four books. <laughs> okay, very good. Now, are there other stories that you're pursuing, Peter, besides the the, the tale of the vagrant in that world? Yeah. So while I was while uh, waiting, kind of for the vagrant as well, and when I finished drafting the sequel, I did write something else, uh, which is completely different, which exists and sitting in a drawer. Should I get the chance to shop it? <laughs> um, and I'm currently working on a completely new thing 
which also involves demons, but it's set in a very different world. And the demons are very different kinds of demons. Okay. I'm, I'm sensing demons. demons are great. And I'm going to say, I'm sensing a theme here, Peter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The thing, the thing about demons is that they, they work as kind of scary monsters that are just savage things to attack your protagonists, but they can also be very subtle and they can also be deeply psychological and they can kind of get into the minds of your characters and they can make deals with them and all kinds of, so that, I think demons are a nice broad palette to work with. And they kind of fulfill that, that objective we talked about in the 20 minutes with of the, of the eternal enemy, the, the unstoppable enemy, because unless you've got the exact right thing, ritual, sword, whatever, they're unstoppable. Yeah. And I love the, the fact with, with certain demons, you know, in, in kind of mythical stories and things as well, they keep going back, you know, maybe not even in the lifetime of the heroes. But it might be their grandkids or great grandkids are going to face that demon again. Who's going to remember everything their ancestors did and bear <laughs> that grudge? So that kind of thing is wonderful, I think. And a wonderful narrative for the reader, too, because if they've read those books, then they say, oh, this guy. Oh, crap. You guys are screwed. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I will make sure all of that gets into the liner notes, Peter, and I do hope time allows for you to pursue your, your demonic compulsion, <laughs> in a literary sense anyway. Uh, I, I want to turn the, the spotlight over to, to Emily and Michelle. You guys are, are you know one of the foundations of, of the Beyond the Tro podcast is you are both writers. Uh, you all three are writers and pursuing your careers. Emily, Michelle, is there anything coming up that uh, listeners need to know about from you guys? Oh, man. I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Emily is working on some first drafts, and she's doing a bunch of short story stuff. Awesome. And I am in the midst of waiting for beta readers to send me notes back so I can start a bunch of edits on my manuscript. Excellent. See, the process continues. The process continues. That's excellent. And, so. and uh, before we move on real quick, just podcast notes. Uh, we, the three of us for Beyond the Trope, are going to be at Denver Comic-Con. Awesome. Are you, are you going to be doing a live cast? It might not be live, but we are planning on doing some recording and hopefully getting some awesome interviews. Mm-hmm. And we were also, there's a writing conference in September that we're doing some lecture panel type stuff at. Outstanding. Where's that? It's at the Rocky Mountain... Fiction writers. Oh yes, indeed. I heard in uh, Patrick Hester talking about that on Functional Nerds. Mm-hmm. Very cool. It's pretty cool. Bunch of nerdy writers getting together. Absolutely. In, Nothing in the, better. In the, in the thin air of of Mile High City. Yes, it's all good. Mm-hmm. It's all good. <laughs> Excellent. I'll, I'll make sure that gets in the liner notes too. This is awesome, friends. I'm I'm going to actually put a halt to this this wonderful, uh, uh, delightful discovery of all the wonderful things we're doing and say let's. I want to I want to pause for for another podcast promo or or an ebook or some fabulosity that's going on out in the potosphere. But when we come back, I want to sit down with all three of you and our not so mystery guest writer waiting in the wings, and I want to workshop a story with you. What do you say? That sounds fantastic. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I'm with that. Awesome. We we have an accord, as as, oh, good. as Jack Sparrow would say. So, friends, don't you go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Graham Dunlop of Pseudopod, and I'm here to tell you about the Parsec Awards. The Parsecs are like the Hugos of genre podcasting. They were created to celebrate speculative fiction podcasting. Podcast shows are nominated by fans, and finalists are chosen by a yearly steering committee. 
Those finalists are then voted on by an independent panel of judges from outside of podcasting. The winners are revealed at DragonCon in Atlanta, Georgia, the first weekend in September. Founded in 2005 by Tracy Hickman, Mer Lafferty and Michael Menenga, the Parsec Awards recognise those whose work mark the pinnacle of this media form and provide countless hours of entertainment to their audiences. Want to see your favourite SpecFic podcast win? Sure you do. Head on over to www.parsecawards.com to find out more about the awards and nominate your favourite podcasts. And remember, Pseudopod is watching over you all, and not in a good Santa Claus kind of way. Welcome back to the Roundtable Podcast, dear friends, and now we get down to the serious mojo, the dance, the the, the dance of, of, not death, the dance of creation, the dance of the brainstorm. <laughs> That's what we're doing here. This is this is what you came for, the workshop segment, uh, and that does not happen without a badass, courageous, uh, a creative and courageous guest writer willing to offer his, his nascent story concept up for scrutiny, consideration, and apparently submitting to a blender and and some Beach Boys music, which I think is going to be fabulous. (laughs) And for this workshop episode, dear friends, our guest writer has followed in a long tradition of writers and has been writing stories since they were old enough to grip a crayon. Uh, uh, leading off with some lovely fan fiction that involved Star Trek that mercifully disappeared with his parents' old Power Mac. Uh, uh, That's one way to trunk a novel, by golly. Uh, Now, for a while, he pursued a life of the rock star, uh, but, but soon he realized that stories were a lot more fun than trying to stand out from a million other awesome guitar players in smoky clubs. So he turned away from the piano keyboard and turned his eyes to the computer keyboard. Six years later, he completed his first novel. Six years, that's not bad for the first one. Uh, since then, he's written five more utterly unpublishable books. Again, kind of following in the footsteps of our guest host. Uh, and now he's pitching the best best novel he ever wrote, and following the advice of wise writers everywhere, including the one on this podcast, he started on his next story, which will be followed by the next, and after that, until finally, even if he never manages to be a rock star in the fiction world, he'll always have his stories to keep him impassioned and fired up and excited about fiction. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the roundtable, Giles Hash. Thank you, Dave. My singular pleasure, Giles. Dude, that's all. You were a rock star for a while. Heck no! I wanted to be one when I was wanted in high to be. school. He was, what, what was what was the what was the music your band was playing? We tried to be punk, but it turned out to be um, a little more emo. Okay, that's well, so you cute. Know, if you slow down, punk, I think it becomes emo. So a little bit, a little more up tempo, and you could have like been up right, right up there with with uh, the Sex Pistols and so on. <laughs> so. The best part about all this is that I knew he played guitar, but I had no idea he was actually in a band. Boom! Revelation. What was the band called? What was the name? Uh, I don't think we ever came up with a real name. <laughs> what? Travesty. That, that might have contributed to the to the failure of the band, dude. What do you put on your posters? We never actually had any ah. shows. It never moved out of the oh, garage. Oh, dude. <laughs> Still, that's that's awesome. And there's a strong correlation between storytelling and music and storytelling and fiction. You and I need to sit down at a con sometime over some beers and discuss that. 
for sure. That would be awesome. But for now, let's let's move on to the pitch. Now, you know how this works, Giles. We're going to give you five to eight minutes. You you give us the title, the genre, your intended audience. Hit us with a tagline. Uh, uh, give us some, some of the themes that you're working on. Introduce us to the world, the characters. Uh, give us the, the story tent poles that we can riff on, and we will launch ourselves into a frothing brainstorm. I'm going to get out of the way, sir. The mic is all yours. All right. So Strike Force is the working title for this YA sci-fi. It follows a five-act structure similar to James N. Frey's style from How to Write a Damn Good Mystery, uh, and it's loosely inspired by Shakespeare's The Tempest. Gina, a cadet in a military high school, is confronted with the morality of being a soldier when she's forced to make tough choices to protect an innocent colony from her own government and an exiled private army. The theme is that doing the right thing doesn't always feel good, but it's almost always harder than doing nothing. In this world, there's already faster-than-light travel, and when Earth terraformed other planets, they formed an empire ruled by the inner four planets of our solar system, and they called it the Tetrarchy. A group called Ganymede Industries opposes Earth's expanding empire, especially as Earth continues to amass power within the Milky Way Trade Consortium, a group of trade organizations from several different planets around the universe. Gina's school is privately funded but by groups that support the Tetrarchy's goals within the trade consortium. My protagonist is Gina, a mechanics expert with a focus on atmospheric generators. She's terrified of getting stuck in her parents' oxygen farm on Mars and being a quote-unquote nobody for the rest of her life. Her biggest dream is to see the universe and help people, and she wants to change lives. When the story starts, she's excited but nervous to be joining a military prep school, and by the end of it, she knows she wants to help people, but she still isn't sure if the military is the direction she wants to go. Her two best friends are going to be Maggie, a spunky ginger who grew up in a space station orbiting the moon, and Itress, a strange parrot-like alien who's part of an exchange program with the school. The primary antagonist is Dumont, the Tetrarchy's ex-ambassador to the Trade Consortium. He's an exile on the planet where most of this story takes place, and he wants to stay in quiet anonymity there with the wealth that he stole when his successor got him fired. He's afraid of the colony getting absorbed by the Tetrarchs. He's afraid of getting discovered by his old bosses since the theft cost them trillions. And he starts the story in quiet retirement and ends it as a war criminal who's going to face trial for trying to murder a group of students. We also have Yeoman Heathers, who acts as Gina's mentor, Dan, the love interest and part-time sidekick, and Kelso, a secondary antagonist who plays Gina's foil. The story starts with Gina's first trip off of Mars. When she arrives on the ship, she's quickly thrown into a military routine that, despite the long hours on the farm growing up, exhausts her nearly to death. Between traditional classes, she learns how to maintain a military-grade spacecraft, and she trains with a combat suit alongside her unit, made up of Kelso, who's the team leader, Dan, Maggie, and Atress. In Act 2, the Bellingham receives a distress call from a colony planet. The air generators are malfunctioning, and while a team of Ganymede industry scientists have been there for over a year, the generators need expert help from someone like the geniuses on the Bellingham. The students are sent to the generators all over the planet, and Gina's team faces little difficulty reaching and stabilizing their assigned generator before it explodes and spews toxic gas into the atmosphere. On their hike to the colony's largest settlement, where the Bellingham shuttles have landed, they get attacked by a group of guerrilla soldiers who work for Dumont. It's a shock, but with their combat suits and three months of intensive training behind them, they hold their own long enough for Yeoman Heathers to show up with her team of elites, the school's expert teachers. 
While the Bellingham's leadership takes stock of the situation on the planet, Gina has time to reflect on her actions in the forest. She knows for certain that she didn't kill anybody, but she saw men die. That realization cuts into her soul, and she's suddenly aware of how serious a decision she's faced with when she graduates. This is her main internal struggle throughout the story, and while intellectually she can understand the morality of protecting the innocent from evil men and women, she doesn't know how to come to terms with being the person to stand between innocence and evil. Enter the antagonist, Dumont. He's pissed to see the Bellingham because now Earth could look to the planet as a new resource for their expanding empire. Seeing Gina's desire to help people, he approaches her to tell her about a huge stash of information that he stole when he lost his old job. He convinces her to give the information to the GI scientists, which will help the colony and give GI a way to impede Earth's expansion. It also gives him a chance to put Kelso in danger, since Kelso's dad is the man who took Dumont's job, and Dumont wants revenge. Because of this, he also gives Kelso the same information, hoping the boy will put himself in danger. On to Act 3. As a group, the students put together a permanent fix for the atmospheric network. Since she has the most experience with the technology, Gina is consulted a lot, even though many of her ideas are dismissed. Combined with the fact that she's still troubled by all the deaths she's seen, she starts to feel stifled by people in command. She knows she's an expert, but they're ignoring her. When she confronts command, her entire unit gets disciplined for insubordination. Yeoman Heathers takes some time out to counsel her, both for her mental anguish and to teach her how the command structure works. This helps Gina understand her responsibilities, but it also makes her want to leave the Bellingham for a group like G.I. In one of their counseling sessions, Gina tells Heathers about Dumont's stash, but Heathers says they should ignore it unless they can pick it up without getting distracted from their job. Finally, the students get sent out to fix the atmospheric network. On their way to the generator, Gina sees the landmarks that lead to Dumont's stash. She calms Heathers to get permission to retrieve the stash, but is ordered to stay on task. She's annoyed, but she does what she's told. At the tower, she fixes the generator while the rest of the unit fights off a surprise attack from Dumont's mercenaries. They fight off the soldiers, but suffer serious wounds. That's why they're ordered directly back to the Bellingham instead of getting permission to get Dumont's stash. Kelso and Gina refuse to leave it behind, but everyone else follows orders. In Act 4, Kelso and Gina retrieve the stash and run back to the settlement. When they arrive, Dumont is waiting for them with more mercs. Before Dumont can order his mercs to kill Kelso, though, Gina attacks her unit leader. They fight, and while Gina is trying to subdue Kelso, Heathers rushes in with the rest of the ship's soldiers. The Bellingham's people are outnumbered by the mercs, but Dumont keeps his people on standby until Kelso is subdued but still alive. There's a firefight where several of the students and combat structures are wounded, but I can't really decide if anyone's going to die. The mercs are definitely defeated. This is the spot where I'm having the most trouble with the story and why I need to workshop, because I need a solid climax and a satisfying Act 5, which is the denouement. I think we can help with that, dude. That's that's a, uh, that's a excellent pitch. I think there's good story food there. Uh, before we go any further, other than other than a denouement and, and a good solid punch of an end, is there anything else that you're looking for in, in this next you know, 40, 45 minutes or so? I'm looking specifically for how Gina can be made the character that makes this story so important. I have this story in mind and I have this character who I really like, but I want to make sure that it's not something where – this story would turn out the same if she were substituted with a different character. So I definitely want to make her more integrated into the plot than she already is. Okay. 
All right, I think we can work with that. I, I, I think uh, I think we all can make contributions to that. But before we do, uh, we totally need to cover our ass. So, uh, Emily, Michelle, would you be so kind as to deliver the patented roundtable podcast disclaimer, please? Oh, we would love to. <laughs> now, Giles, you're about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations from all of us. It's important that you realize Everything said from this point forward by myself, Emily, Dave, or Peter might be complete bullshit and probably will be. (laughs) This is your story. And while Michelle and I might comment on it in critique, you get to decide what to use and what to cast aside. Totally your decision. Okay? Agreed. Yes! Our asses are covered. We're off the hook. We can play. Very good. All right. Let's dive into this. We traditionally start with a quick once around the table from all the people that received that lovely pitch. Uh, And as is our custom, we'll lead off with our guest host. So Peter Newman, start us off. What are your what are your first impressions of of Giles's story? Uh, And do you have any questions for clarification or, or issues along those lines that we can help iron out before we dive into this? I, I'm full of the questions. Yeah. Then, so something that I'm so first off, by the way, um, you know, I salute you, Giles, for coming on and pitching in public. It's always a real tough gig. So well done. Here, here. And, um, Thank you. I just want to clarify a few things before we get into the, the kind of the workshopping. So, for example, the Bellingham, is that ship connected to the the, the Tetrarchy? Or is it part of the Milky Way Consortium? Where is where is that? You know, is the military part of the Tetrarchy or is it a separate military? The prep school that is on the Bellingham is a private organization that gets funded by groups that also have um, a, an invested interest in the Tetrarchy's success. So they're effectively mercenaries. Effectively, yes. And then they feed into the uh, the Tetrarchy's Naval Academy, which then creates officers for their Navy. Okay. And my, thank you for that. And my next question is, you, in the when you're describing the plot, there are several points at which Dumont's um, soldiers attack Gina and the other students. Um, so if we start with the first one, I'm just unclear why. Why are these soldiers attacking these students? I had that question too. Mm-hmm. That's actually a good question and something I want to work through. Um, part of it is that they are they are guarding his stash. But aside from that, I, I would like to figure out it's, – it's a way for me to focus on Gina and her units – cohesion as a group part of their training and something to move the story forward but if it doesn't work i'm definitely looking for opportunities to swap something out with a better plot point okay just while while i'm there with a question just out of interest have you are you have you written up to act four at this point or is this- i have not I've, I've written the outline and i've written a few scenes that are basically exploratory all of which is completely disposable and reworkable so we've got a pretty free pitch then to Absolutely. Oh, wonderful. Okay, fine, great. Break out the sledgehammers, baby. Yes. (laughs) Anything else, Peter? I'm just quickly skimming over to see. Yeah, so Ganymede Industries, how do they fit into the Milky Way Consortium? I mean, are they they part of it? Are they a separate group? How does that work? They are a separate organization in the outer planets of the solar system that are trying to help planets who don't want to be pulled into the tetrarchy remain independent so creating technology that can help them 
be an economic force of independence without getting sucked into the expanding empire of the tetrarchy. Okay, and I think I've got one more, and then I'll then I'll step back in terms of questions, and that is one of the um, the students is an alien, uh, kind of parrot-like entity, and I'm just wondering what their role is in the story. Yep, the big role is to it. It's two roles really. The major role is to give Gina an opportunity to compare and contrast humanity and see what her actions as a human look like on the universal stage in comparison to this completely foreign culture. And then the other opportunity that Itress provides is um, it's a way for me to add some flavor to the universe instead of just humans expanding out into an empty universe. It shows that there are other creatures with intelligence that the humans need to learn to coexist with. Okay, thank you. All right. Very good. Uh, uh, Michelle, we'll go with you next so that you can steal all of Emily's ideas this time. Oh, uh, yes. Um, I guess my very first question is how in the world did Earth get stuff together enough to go and terraform an empire? Did the UN take over the entire world and they, they suddenly <laughs> plan everything now? It, did America take over? and? <laughs> Well, and let me qualify that. Is is, is the origin of the ter- uh, the tetrarchy germane to the story? Actually, for, mm-hmm. from a world-building standpoint, it, it, it's not a bad question. But briefly, briefly, do you have that figured out, Giles? I don't have a whole lot of details figured out as far as that goes, and it won't really play into this story. If I'm able to turn it into a series, it may take place. Or it might be relevant in book four or five. But if I'm only doing a trilogy, it won't be all that relevant. So, so intriguing question, Michelle, but I'm not sure – from a workshop standpoint if we need to go into it hey that's fine it was just the very first question on the list <laughs> <laughs> what's the next question my other question we're we've kind of already touched on this but it's kind of difficult for me to see the differences between milky way and ganymede and the all the different organizations and how they are in relation to dumont and who is against whom and that's a good question. I had that, I had that same that. question. Uh, mm-hmm. Just in terms of, just real quick, Joe, sketch it out. The Tetrarchy, the Ganymede, and the Milky Way Consortium. What are their relationships? Okay, so the Milky Way Consortium is basically, it's similar to a UN trade organization where all of the aliens who are able to do um, faster-than-light travel get together and figure out trade agreements and uh, all kinds of merchant-type um, stuff to be specific and Ganymede industries is, Oh, let's look at them kind of like uh, Greenpeace, and only without the eco-terrorism. And uh, then the Tetrarchy is just a, a group of planets that have banded together to pool their own resources in an attempt to create a stronger union to, to form galactic stability at the very least within the four inner planets of the solar system. Um, along with the colonies that they've been able to set up outside of the solar system and throughout various parts of the Milky Way. So it's a loose empire. You know, yeah. When you say empire, it, it, we can probably even put quotes around that. Just Yeah, it's, it's more of a, a, a treaty agreement where they all agree that they're on the same team, and there's not really any risk of it falling apart anytime soon. Okay. What else you got, Michelle? Uh, so if Dumont is so worried that he's going to get caught by his former colleagues – why doesn't he go further away? 
Let's let's table that. That's a good question, and that, I think that's a question for the workshop because I think I think part mm-hmm. of part of what's going to to help us crystallize the story is the defining and refining of the antagonist. Mm-hmm. So I, I think yeah, that's 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 a good question. I I'm mm-hmm. curious why why he waves his hands when all he allegedly wants is to go away quietly. Giles, did you have a, a, a an idea of what he was what his motivation was for that? Um. Kind of. I mean, it. He stay. the The planet is actually very secluded, and it's a very new colony, as in only like three years old. And so he's been. He's only been there for a few years, and he thought he was as hidden as he possibly could be. And he's really trying to keep the mercenaries and his own presence on the planet a secret. That's the the big driving point of his existence on this planet. So his attempt to get the the, the Bellingham to go away really quickly is um, get Kelso killed and then get everybody off the planet. And why is there a possibility that the Bellingham won't leave? Because they're aware of this planet and the more they do research into the planet, they're going to be able to find resources that the Tetrarchy could make use of. Okay. Okay. Cool. That I think that answers that. That raises some questions, but we can dive, that, dive into that during the brainstorm. Anything else, Michelle, for your first round? No, we can hand the mic off to Emily now. Very good. Emily? Um, my big question as far as overall views is that you mention a lot of characters who then proceed to completely disappear from the rest of the plot. For example, Dan, the love interest and part-time sidekick. Uh, how big do you want the romance subplot to be? I'm still working that out. It's one of the mm-hmm. reasons I want to workshop. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, and it is YA, and that's not always required for a YA, but but romance is definitely one of the the values, uh, one of the qualities that you run into in a YA story. So, Mm -hmm. okay. Uh, What else you got, Emily? I had the same issues with all of the organizations, which got answered. Uh, And then Kelso and Dumont's relationship, which I'm assuming we'll we'll pin down in workshops more. Um, Do you have an idea of what this planet is, where it is in the solar system. How it's, it, it's not in this solar system. It's actually, where it is in the galaxy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I haven't quite pinned that down yet, no, but uh, it's a very, very long way away from any other civilized planets. Mm-hmm. And it has unobtainium. Yeah, basically. <laughs> or something like that, that, that is going to make it a very valuable asset. Actually, that we'll save that for the workshop, too. Anything else, Emily? Um. Nothing else on this first round, I don't think. Okay, good. The, the benefit of going last is that everybody covers all your shit ahead of time, and yeah. that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Thanks, guys. Uh, so, yeah, really. Um, uh, the a lot of the things, the, the questions that I had have been addressed and and can be explored deeper. I had two questions that remain. And before I do that, let me just say this: I, I like the framework that you've created here, Giles. This this has the smacks of serenity. With with Ganymede, I see the brown coats as as kind of Ganymede, not just Greenpeace, but also screw you, organized empire people trying to tell me what to do. You know, it's 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 the freedom of space. You know, when you get into the spaceship and you fly out, you're it's liberating. And and the Tetrarchy is is by its very nature not liberating. Everybody has to play by the rules. So I like that. I've also, I, for some reason, and I don't know why, but I, I keep going back to Ender's Game, and there's nothing about uh, Ender's <laughs> Game in this story, but it keeps coming up in my mind that I'm not sure why. Maybe as we explore forward, it'll it'll come out. But I did have two questions. Um, 
first of all, uh, uh, we've got the tetrarchy where everybody agrees we're all going to get along and, and we all have common interests. We've got Ganymede, which, as you presented, was kind of Greenpeace, just leave us the hell alone. And then we've got the Milky Way Consortium, which is a much larger organization of which the tetrarchy is just a small part of. Is that a, is that a fair assessment, Giles? It is, and okay. uh, the the Milky Way Consortium really is only backstory for world building, so it doesn't play into the story itself. It was mostly something for me to let everybody know, hey, this is where Dumont came from, but they won't actually show up um, except maybe in one or two paragraphs in the overall story. Okay, wait, Dumont came from the Milky Way Consortium? He was the Tetrarchy's ambassador. I think I mentioned that as okay. part of the backstory. Yeah, uh, he was the ambassador to the Tetra, or f- he was the Tetrarchy's ambassador to the consortium. See, I, okay, we'll talk about that in the workshop. Cool. Um, if if that's the case, I, I don't hear a lot of conflict in this universe. Uh, uh, so I'm curious as to why there's a military training area in a world that everybody seems to be getting along on. Who who are they fighting? Who are the enemies? There are other alien races who are I mean, the the. Just like there are people within the UN who may not be on the friendliest of terms with the other countries in the UN, um, members of the consortium are flexing their muscles and everybody, especially with the military wanting or the the Tetrarchy wanting to create an empire, they're building a a military to be able to take over any planets that may seem hostile and um, in need of invasion. See, you, 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 you have said that you, you want to keep the Milky Way Consortium out of the story, but the very existence of the military training that Gina is undertaking is linked to that consortium and to the alien races that are involved in there. I, I, I'm not sure we're going to be able to get away with keeping the consortium out of this story, at least in terms of a, a more intimate presence. It doesn't necessarily have to figure in specifically, but I'm uh, that this is my first thought. The other thing is that we've got Dumont, who is an ambassador, a failed ambassador, a disgraced ambassador to the single most powerful organization in the Milky Way. Uh, uh, and he was disgraced and, and lost his job and so on and so forth. So when Gina goes to Heathers, Yeoman Heathers, and says, hey, I found Dumont and he's got this stash of data, Yeoman Heathers ignores it. I have a problem with that. Uh, uh, here's an international criminal who could do all kinds of amazing stuff. Why, why would an officer in an organization that is focused very specifically on the Milky Way Consortium not leap at the chance of bringing in an international criminal? Put in that context, I don't have an answer. <laughs> all right. So all right. That will so, be my first note of something to fix. Then let's roll on then. Let's let's dive into the workshop proper. Um, the questions that have been raised here, I think, are all good ones. I don't think any of them are, are unsalvageable. I think they just it just indicates areas that we can shore up the story, lash the characters in a little more, bit more tightly, and create a more compelling narrative. So, Peter, we have a lot of places to start. Where do you want to dive in? So am I right in saying I can dive in anywhere or talk about anything here? Absolutely. Sky's the limit. Okay, so I'm, I'm pretty much on the same page with what's being said here. I feel like there are two major things that, that, that I want to kind of think about at this stage. And one is that I think the characters need to be tied into the world in a much more kind of strong way because surely the conflict is all their different allegiances and histories and backgrounds. You know, you've got an alien in this group who surely has its own allegiances and views and agenda that will be different to the humans. And how is that going to work? So that's the first thing. And the second thing uh, is that I feel like the characters all need agendas. 
Yeah. I feel like nobody, nobody so far seems to be trying to do anything apart from react to what's happening. So, you know, um, I think the, the thing that Giles wanted was that Gina is going to be different. You know, you couldn't just put anyone in her place. So my first thought about that is Gina is supposedly, from what I can tell from the description, an incredibly intelligent young woman who is able to question the society that she's in and the culture that she's in. So my first suggestion or thought is that Gina should make a plan. She should either start the book with a plan or she should make one through the book. Okay. She decides on her own. Because one of the things that always bugs me in these stories is heroes often are just reactive. It's always the villain that has the plan. And then the villain just tries to stop it, and that annoys me. So I'd really like it in this narrative if Gina could have her own idea about how best to make the universe a better place. What if Gina, what if Gina is a member of the Ganymede organization and is leaving Ganymede in in an attempt to to find reconciliation maybe, or, or I'm not sure why I did this. The idea just popped in my head, but having her be from the other guys and joining this military organization only getting in because she's got the incredible savvy of these this mechanic skill and these atmospheric processors but holy crap everybody's going to hate her she's she's one of the outsiders she's one of the ganymede people that don't get the tetrarchy which is what everybody's about and if she's doing this to to i don't know understand you know to, to riff on what you're saying peter her her objective her goal is is to you know, maybe initially get away from the dirt clods that is Ganymede mm-hmm. and have an immediate and have a, a revelation maybe halfway through or, or a third of the way through to discover that, you know, the grass isn't greener on the other side. Holy crap. These guys aren't any better than what I thought I had. Funnily uh, enough, Dave, actually, I was always thinking something similar, but, but the opposite. I was thinking, <laughs> wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be good if she'd been pulled out of the mud by the Tetrarchy because her school is funded by them? Ah, Nice. Because then she could actually have quite an interesting relationship or parallel with DeMont. Because DeMont has fled. He was the Tetrarchy's ambassador and he has fled. You know, what if he hated it in the Tetrarchy as well? What if, you know, when she meets him, they're kind of like birds of a feather? Right. You know, there's there's that. And that she wants to get away from the Tetrarchy and do something different or better. He might be a folk hero to her. Yeah, he might be the awesome guy who told that gave the finger to the tetrarchy. The mythology of his background is, you know, yeah. he he wasn't fired. He's not disgraced. He's a hero. He stepped out. He could be Robin Hood. Maybe he took the money from the tetrarchy <laughs> and gave it to I don't know struggling aliens everywhere. Yeah, or or just to the Ganymedian, <laughs> the Ganymedians. He's Robin Hood. What if the colony he's hiding on? He is actually, you know, he's given them all the money to fund all their stuff and they are hiding him in return. Giles, what do you think? I like that. I also like the idea of him doing more direct funding to GI, which would explain why they were on the planet anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I think that could that could build some really interesting tension between Gina and Dumont later on when she finds out that he's not all that he seems to be. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, you know, that's the arc is that, you know, ultimately what Dumont has done is is flee he's you know and and whatever the truth of his disgrace and his stole and blah 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 you know that's a gray area that we can giles can have a lot of fun exploring uh especially as she defends dumont when everybody calls him this 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 heinous dude um but that that 
what Dumont did was withdraw. He didn't want to make change. He said, screw you. I don't want to fix things. I'm just going to go off my little sandbox over here and play. Whereas the more noble arc would be to serve as a bridge between these two conflicting ideologies and create a unification. Cause, cause really when you think about it in terms of how the Milky Way consortium is looking at the Terrans, I wouldn't want them in my group. They're, they're divided. They're fractious. You know, having having people that are fighting amongst themselves and can't even agree on on a single ideology, that's that's bad for business. And and so this could be a contention of what's holding the tetrarchy back from fully engaging with the, the Milky Way consortium. I wax rhapsodic. No, no, I, I, but I think that's the key. I think each of the, the characters need to have their own allegiances and agendas that will then create the conflict. Yeah. You know, so for example, if, if Gina is with the Tetrarchy but is trying to turn against them, what if one of the other characters was a spy for the Milky Way consortium? Ooh. You know, what if Dad was in fact a shape shifting alien, for example? Yes. Who yes. was there to keep an eye on these dodgy Terrans and make sure that they weren't doing anything bad. And you know, and what if the Terrans do do bad things? You know, what if they turn up on this world and there is this really cool resource? And the the group are ordered to, you know, suppress the population and take the resource. Yeah. And then, you know, all of that, you know, and then you have all the different factions within the students and who are they reporting to and what's going to happen. And Well, and I, I love the idea of Dan being a spy for the consortium because that not only, you know, wonderful, great reveal and you've got the whole, oh, my God, you lied to me all this time. But you've <laughs> also got this wonderful hook. For future storytelling, uh, if if their relationship survives this betrayal, uh, uh, to get Gina into the Milky Way consortium consortium and have a wider story arc being told, that's awesome. I like that. What do you think, Giles? As we say, God, I like that. <laughs> as if it were our story. I do like some of those ideas. Um, as far as someone being a spy, I think Maggie or Atress might be the the most obvious ones because they're going to be the roommates. Um, especially Maggie, who claims to be someone who grew up around Mars and is um, just the spunky little best friend who's really smart but struggling. Um, it, it's that huge shock and turn around, my best friend stabbed me in the back kind of uh, story twist. Well, I think it, I think making a trust the spy is too obvious. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. As yeah. I said it, I completely agreed with that. <laughs> Alien like, yeah, spy. That's, but yeah. if they find out that there is a spy in the organization, and maybe that's something that the uh, the military academy has known and they've been trying to root out who it is, maybe Atres is catching some flack for you know possibly being a, 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 a traitor to the to the tetrarchy, even though ostensibly he she he she gender uh, she she even though she is. Uh, uh, you know, clearly here to as a cultural exchange, whatever. Um, and that could also give you some wonderful. I'm seeing some lovely thematic elements of, of conflict and, and preconceptions and, and the, the, the noble path evolving here. This is this is awesome. But Michelle, what do you got? Anything that's that's popping for you? I was just thinking that sounds cool. Because if everyone is thinking that Etress is the spy, and if you've already isolated Gina in that she's an outsider kind of way, then you have this whole school that turns on the both of them. Yeah. And I like having that in your head kind of conflict, not just 
this is a bad guy, this is a bad guy, this is a good guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to be careful with that, too, because Gina is – I've written – the character that spoke to me, um, to get really metaphorical about it, it Gina's a black girl, uh, grew up on Mars, and I don't want her to become the token uh, minority who gets thrown into the – usual suspect kind of situation. There are going to be other characters that are several other characters who are other minorities throughout the story as well. But I don't want to make, because she's the protagonist, I don't want to touch on, I don't want to step dangerously on the, the social message that could come across. So I definitely want, uh, as we're moving forward with that to make sure that I'm working with that idea in a just way to create the character as a positive, um, a positive character for people who want to read books with diverse characters. Well, if you want to make her an other, then then having her be part of the Ganymede organization and plucked from that, as Peter suggested, for her for her prowess and ability, uh, uh, very clearly defines that framework for you, doesn't it? Well. That's the thing. I don't want her to be the other. I want her to be just another kid who happens to have dark skin. So we're moving beyond the just the superficial of who she is and actually dive into the personality and um, the the things that make her human. Okay. Okay. Well, and, and that's – yeah, and that's all in how you explore the narrative. Right. Uh, as, a, as a question, just on, just on that, because you, you're talking about um, – we, we, you know, we're talking about the uh, the ethnicity of your protagonist, but you're in a future setting. So, you know, how relevant is it or is it a culture that we would recognize? You know, is this just a skin color thing or is it based in a in a, a culture that exists, if you like, on Earth now that we would recognize? Because that's quite that's quite important. That's a good point, because we have evolved. I mean, if, if the same issues that are plaguing us now sustain for hundreds of years into the future, that that doesn't seem it's like, holy crap, we can't get past this. I, that's a good point, Peter. What do you think, Jazz? As far as this particular story goes, the, the color of her skin isn't going to be directly relevant to the plot per se. Uh, it's just going to be something that is part of who she is, that she recognizes that the human race has remained diverse um, racially, but it has she hasn't experienced any bigotry growing up. All right. I, let's table this for now. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I think there's other other things that we can dive in. Is everybody cool with that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Peter? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I wanted to put out uh, uh, the, the need of a mentor. Uh, and and you kind of alluded that Yeoman Heathers, uh, uh, you know, all the way I think it's Act Three or Four, uh, uh, tries to counsel her as she you know steps out of line and gets smacked down. Um, I actually kind of like to see Yeoman Heathers take a more active role early on as Gina's. Uh, uh, mentor and guide and and maybe you know maybe yeoman heathers can represent uh, a, a similar situation again i'm i'm really taken with the idea of gina being from ganymede but that's that's not your story but whatever whatever <laughs> conflict or 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 background is causing gina distress to have it echoed in yeoman heathers have heathers dealt with it in one way that isn't the way that ultimately Gina is, but can propose an option that Gina can follow for a while and only discover that that doesn't work for her. Does that make sense? It does. And uh, Heather's is the 
acts as the drill sergeant when they're doing all of their actual military training. So that's going to be a big part. She's very integrated in the lives of all the students. But as I've started playing around with some opening scenes, Heather's is directly invested in Gina's success because Gina is so unique as far as how her abilities got her into the school. Okay. One thing I wanted to, to drop in there that I, I, for me anyway, that I like the thought of is that you've got Heather's as an influence on Gina. And obviously Gina is figuring out her place in the world in this book. Mm-hmm. And that potentially Dumont is not just your sort of cloaked villain, but is actually a, another influence that makes her question Heather's influence. Yeah. Sort of thing between them. They could both potentially be mentors. If he is sort of a, you know, a mythical or heroic figure who's done these things in the past, and then she meets him, and he's he's calling into question the standard lines of the Tetrarchy and the school. That's kind of interesting, and she has to decide for herself what she believes or doesn't believe, and that probably neither of them are right, but she has to find her own path through it, but that opposition yeah. is kind of an interesting thing. So, so riffing on Gina a little further, and Giles, I'd, I'd like you to speak to this. I, I like what Peter was saying about having Gina have a plan going forward, not just, you know, wide eyed, doe eyed, go out and see the world, but actually have an agenda. Does that, does that resonate for you? It does. And it's something that I've been struggling with as I, since I finished my last book and all of the stories that I've been trying to create, I've had trouble creating characters who have an agenda. And that's the biggest reason why I wanted to jump on and workshop is create and just the fact that that term characters with an agenda has come up, it's created a light bulb in my brain that's making me think more and more about the character again in a, in a way that I've tried to think about them but haven't been able to up until now. And you're focused on you, – you definitely want her to be a part of the tetrarchy as she goes forward. That's not necessarily um, – uh, it, it's not necessarily mean, – I could – make her part of the tetrarchy but i'm open to other ways to get her involved in this story so that she's a force for change in this story okay so opening it up to the table what are the conflicts that you see in this world uh that can be grounded in gina's story that will link her to the world and the world story more intimately well, there. I mean, you you want to talk about the atmospheric generators that the kids have to come down and work on. She grew up on an oxygen farm on Mars. So, what if there was some sort of similar issue with the uh, atmospheric generators that wound up being uh, someone tampering with them, or something that had also happened on Mars that could um, tie into Gina had dealt with that previously and she's just coming to this awareness of hey this isn't a natural phenomenon so so she and and she joins the military to to investigate this broader thing possibly or that comes out um once she reaches the planet and she sees it again so it's it sure. so she's the only one on the ship who's seen it before well and so that, that could be that could be the tetrarchy you know trying to sabotage the 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 colony uh to make them uh, give them a reason for being there. Maybe this is all just a ruse uh, uh, that the Tetrarchy is using underhanded tactics to have a reason to come out there and then uh, 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 say, oh, Take hey, as long, as long as we're here, let's just stay. That That's a possibility. I can see that. that Their that, reason for liberation. That, that definitely mm-hmm. uh, paints the Tetrarchy in a much more negative and sinister light. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't have to be the Tetrarchy either. It could be 
anybody. It could be a free agent. But then there would need, there would need to be an agenda. There would need to be a reason. Why do you sabotage right. the air processors? Why are you going to kill everybody or, or put people in peril? Uh, can, I, um, can I come in with something a bit left field here? Absolutely. Left field so, is... So, so bear with me a little bit, but one of my favorite villains in the Marvel Universe is Doctor Doom. Yeah. And uh, the reason that I like Doctor Doom is that he often, he doesn't necessarily just want to subjugate everybody because he's horrible. It's because he genuinely believes he will do a better job of looking after everybody than anyone else. Sure. You know, that he's just that smart. That's his, obviously not necessarily true, but that's his conception. And I was thinking, and again, bear with me here. What if Gina is in a situation where she, you know, she's this, this, it always strikes me as odd that a student is doing these mega repairs. So I'm assuming that Gina is like a genius. She's been headhunted for her abilities. She doesn't like a lot of the advice the instructors are giving her. She keeps having her ideas slapped down. What if her journey in the book is realizing that all of these other groups can fighting each other and they're all self-obsessed and selfish, small-minded, petty groups? What if she realizes that she actually is better placed to to look after things than they are? And what if her journey is a bit more potentially dark. What if she starts trying to rise up in either the tetrarchy or something else or whatever so that she can better protect people by becoming a benevolent dictator? I like that. I was, I was thinking something slightly similar, similar. Maybe she is looking for Dumont because she heard of him as this kind of Robin Hood figure and she wants to rule the world kind of like he did. And so part of her plan is to maybe help him and bring things along the way that he was doing things. Well, maybe she's looking for him. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's, you know, what That's why she goes to the school in the first place, not because exactly. she wants to join the military or really help people that way, but because she wants to find him. See, for and some you reason. and you could do this wonderful deception of for the reader of her always asking about Dumont and 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 nodding as people call him a a, a thing a, a dude a, a bad guy a, a traitor blah blah blah. And then when he finally meets up with her, it's like I've been looking for you. We've got a lot to talk about. What if um, what if Gina is the one that tracks him down to his hiding place, and no one else has been able to do it? And what if the very fact that she has done that is a way of her forcing Dumont to become active again? He has retired and wants a quiet life, but she's forcing him to act because if he doesn't, they're all going to come down and find him anyway. Nice. Almost as if Dumont is a retired villain who saw the error of his ways and decided to get out. Mm -hmm. So he was a good guy. And Gina is actually the antagonist of his story. Mm Yeah. Yeah. She could even be the one who was sabotaging the atmospheric machinery. Maybe she's the one who found him on the planet and she figured out a way somehow to fly down and go mess with things so that the school and the kids would have to go fix stuff and be closer to to, to Dumont. She wouldn't even necessarily need to fly down depending on how the um, true equipment is made if she's a genius and they Just have all hack. this tech. All, mm-hmm. all this tech. Well, and, so and that ties could, it more into the Tempest, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sure. Well, and it could just be a simple matter of her fabricating the distress call, have, having isolated, you know, maybe she's nailed it down to like there's three possible colonies where Dumont is. Uh, and she fabricates the distress call. And, and that gets the Belmont there 
And once they're there, they have to, of course, do a survey and check it all out and blah, blah, blah. And bam, she's she's achieved that. Having her be a criminal mastermind early on and, and sabotaging uh, uh, air processors, uh, I think that pushes her a little farther into the shadows than the protagonist can be at the beginning. Yeah, we uh, might struggle to... I mean, it's very interesting, but we might struggle to like her if she is... You know, yeah. ...lives at risk who are just random innocents. But one one thought I was thinking is, what if in the myth of Dumont, there is the fact that he had... I, he either had a weapon or he had information or something that could kind of tear apart the Tetrarchy or would really, you know... And that just when it seemed like he was going to strike or act, he disappeared. She so she finds him anyway, and she's like, "Right, I found you. So let's so give us the thing so that we can make stuff change." But it but it's more complicated than that. That one of the reasons Demont didn't act is that actually it would have caused massive strife and devastation, or or what have you. And that when she gets her answer, it's not quite as nice as she thinks, and she's got that decision of whether to use this kind of doomsday thing and let it out into the world or to bury it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I was thinking along those exact same lines was that the reason that Dumont, the the whole Dumont stole trillions of dollars and and was disgraced and fired and so this and that's all propaganda too. Uh, what happened was as ambassador in the Milky Way ga- uh, consortium, he let, let's say the Milky Way consortium has much better star drives or maybe they've got a stargate system. They have something that keeps that, that makes the humans want to be a part of it. The Tetrarchy want to be a part of it, but is forever keeping us as subordinates to them. And what. Dumont finds is the the mineral, the item, the thing, and and it's listed as a weapon, but it's really a mineral or an item. You know, it's unobtainium. I don't know, uh, uh, but it's here on this planet, and that's why he's here. And and his secret stash. You know, it, that's the, just what you were saying, Peter. It's not a weapon that we can just lift up and shoot. It's this entire planet is this, and now you've got the challenge of oh crap. And it's about to get turned over to the Tetrarchy. Oh, crap. And Gina has totally fucked up because now she's brought the Tetrarchy into this place. It's her fault that now they're going to discover all of this. And there's a wonderful conflict with Dumont, blah, blah, blah. Oh, great. Thanks, little girl. You just ruined everything. And then she has to solve it and fix it somehow. And tying into that, the old discussion we were having is if Maggie, for example, is a spy, an alien spy. Yes. That when it comes out that this is what the situation is, you're going to have the alien spy wanting to take action and report back and get the Milky Way consortium to kind of come and sort things out. You'll potentially have Yeoman Heathers wanting to take it for the Tetrarchy. You'll have Dumont wanting to stop it getting out at all costs, that information. And Gina's somewhere in the middle having to make a decision about who she's going to support. Yes. And getting kind of pulled in all directions. Well, and if it is the mineral that allows for, you know, hyper faster than light travel or stargates or whatever the technology is, whatever the MacGuffin is, instantly you've got, holy crap, if this gets out, then the the the, the Milky Way Consortium is motivated to just nuke the place. The, the, the Tetrarchy is motivated to nuke the place and take it over. It becomes the most contested planet in the where, where once it was this backwater nothing. Now it becomes the focus of everything. And, and then, yeah, exactly as you say, Peter, now Gina has to figure out how to resolve this and ensure that, you know, maybe this is where she sets up her power base. Maybe she says enough is enough. This is a third entity 
in the in the in the fabrication of thing ruled by me and my boy Dubont over here. Well, that could be. You know, I was thinking that perhaps your Act Four, because as it was, Act Four was kind of like the the battle or the conflict between the forces. That could still take place, but it may also now involve additional like Milky Way consortium people and this firefight, and maybe the denouement in Act Five is Gina taking power. Yeah. Giles, what do you think? I kind of like that. I, when I write young adult, I try to keep the characters as pseudo-realistic as possible with realistic global, universal, galactic um, consequences of their actions. So the idea of a teenager taking over a planet, I'd have to... I'd have to rework some ideas on how to make that realistic and believable. Well, have Dumont take over the planet with Gina as his protege or, or okay. what? I definitely like that. For as sure. the sorcerer's or, apprentice. If you yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like that. Or have, have her whole unit work together. Because, I mean, you have the whole unit already set up, more or less. So have the whole unit work with Gina and Dumont. Because then you don't have just one teenager. It's a whole band of genius teenagers figuring things out. Maybe that could be a shtick of this group, that every single member of this group was cherry-picked from across the universe because they were so brilliant at what they did. Yeah. They're not just a bunch of teenagers. They are the absolute cream of the galaxy, and they're being hothoused in this training program to be phenomenal geniuses that will supposedly change everything in the future so now you got scorpion in here as well that's badass <laughs> well i think that was the uh ender's game vibe you were picking up there dave that could be that I, could very I see well that. be yeah i like that because that yeah because then then you've got you know the tetrarchy thinking they can control these people obviously forgetting the fact that they're smarter than everyone uh and and can set up you know like you say that they they become the 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 legion that makes Dumont's. There was a great book. Oh God, I forget. I think it was just called Santiago, uh, uh, and I've invoked this in past episodes. But it was a great book because the whole book was about hunting down this criminal Santiago, and it turns out that Santiago wasn't actually such a bad guy. He was actually a good guy doing bad things for a good reason, and and having that you know having Dumont be the villain throughout. And then suddenly discover, no, not so much. In fact, we're going to create a whole new world here and have Dumont be the foundation. I think that's cool. I think that's one awesome. Of the, one other thought, you could have an interesting thing where, you know, you're talking about uh, Yeoman Heathers being the, the kind of the mentor figure. Yeah. That, that as the book is progressing and Jean has gone through school and is now on the planet and things, she and the other students may start to realize that they're smarter than her. But at first they're awed by her kind of presence and the training confidence yeah but because they are so brilliant they actually supersede her over the course of the book and that where yeoman heathers is then getting orders to take this resource or whatever it is the students you know could potentially turn against her and maybe maybe demont is the same maybe maybe in the end it is gina and the students that use demont as a puppet you know to to hold power that would be a great reveal just as a thought. So it could be that DeMont is taking power and they're helping him, but it's kind of the denouement twist is that the students at the end are like, yeah, but we have you. And if you ever do anything we don't like, you're gone. Or whatever. <laughs> yes. Yes. We're in charge now. now. Now we've got Lord of the Flies going on. Group so, dictatorship. Yay. So what if, what if DuMont is using some of his um, resources as a former ambassador and he's the one who cherry picked Gina's unit through various 
channels and gets them all put on the ship with the tetrarchy thinking that they've hand-selected these brilliant geniuses who are going to help them expand their empire when they graduate high school. And he kind of seeds the way, like breadcrumbs for Gina to... um, to find him interesting and and you could even have gina recognize you know somehow you know by an, an, analyzing the communications or whatever that somebody was manipulating things she's not sure who uh, uh so you got that question raised and then that question becomes answered when she discovers it's dumont and then you have to answer why did dumont want to get all these kids together and banga banga bang and you get this wonderful exponential build that's awesome and it could be really nice you have because you have the mystery in the early part of the book of who is doing this or what is this extra force in the background. And then the kids, in theory, they get there. Everything's going to DeMont's plan. But then the kids decide they don't like the plan. Yeah. They've got a better plan. And they kind of in the, the new one at the end is that they, they flip it on DeMont at the end. Sure. And and you and you populate this this group of geniuses with the exact right you know figure out how the flip is going to happen and then backstory all of the skills and yeah. abilities you need uh, uh, and then bam it's all it was there all the time you just didn't see it bam guys I'm looking at the clock and it's it's winding down uh, uh, so I want to I want to segue into our last segment here I know everybody's got like one one couple other things bouncing around in their head so let's take one last turn around the table uh and, and just real quick uh, uh give giles those last thoughts uh any kind of encouragement any kind of insights or discoveries uh, uh that that will fill his pockets with literary gold and he can send him off to write this awesome story peter we'll we'll start with you sir uh, uh final thoughts for giles well i'm i'm actually getting quite excited about this story I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm loving the idea of kind of super smart kids um and that they're being played by Dumont, they're being ordered by Heathers, and ultimately they kind of break away and do their own thing. So I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally all about that. But I guess my, my thought of my advice really is it feels like every single character needs to have an agenda and needs to have things they want and, uh, and motivations in the story yeah. and also connections to other groups. So you've got lots of different, uh, areas of conflict within the group absolutely i think yeah that's excellent advice and that will that will make each character uh, a dynamic vibrant vital integrated part of the story awesome uh uh, emily what are your final thoughts for giles uh we didn't even really touch on the romance arc and kelso (laughs) and dan we didn't Um, you're right so i i was thinking this whole time of why not just um, smash Dan and Kelso into one character and have Kelso slash Dan, whatever name you decide to go with, be a secondary antagonist, but also the love interest um, instead of just a sidekick love interest. So that's he's inspired. The, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, he's the unit leader and the romance person. And <laughs> um, Gina has to deal with, Oh, he's really cute and I really like him, but he's giving these problematic orders or whatever to just add that other level of tension. Yeah. And if he's one of the geniuses, you know, his skills might need to be vital to the final play. And mm-hmm. if he's not on board, bam, conflict. Awesome. I love mm-hmm. that. Michelle, what about you? Uh, I was just thinking you have this group of genius teenagers. I think they all need some pretty major faults. There should be something that they're bad at or some kind of character flaw that brings up even more tension 
So that they're not all just perfect geniuses. Yeah, so they're not just good at everything. Like That's one of the focuses I think you'll need to have, making everyone really good at something that everyone else in the group maybe has no idea Nobody likes to do. a Mary Sue. No, I- <laughs> what if Dumont has made that as part of a deliberate act in their training? I.e., what if he wanted an Achilles heel just in case? Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yes. So somehow engineered a really awesome flaw in each character. Yeah, and you could even invoke that by saying, you know, there were these three other candidates that were, were uh, originally slated, but at the last minute were cut out for one reason or another in favor yeah. of these other characters. Why? And, and that, you know, again, seeding that discovery that you created these, gathered these guys not just for brilliance, but also for their flaws. That's awesome, Peter. And he could even be orchestrating their classes so that, you know, some of them are taking all one class together and one person doesn't even get to study that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like that. That's awesome. That's awesome. For myself, the, the, the thing that... I am gravitating towards and, and I love what we've evolved in this story and I hope you do too. Um, but uh, the, the grand scale, the, the notion of political systems and cultures uh, uh, evolving into the stars and then discovering this threshold beyond which you have, you know, you got your Milky Way consortium, which I, I actually might recommend a different name, uh, uh, something a bit more exotic, uh, maybe that's what the humans call it, but the real name is Chimpak Toy or whatever. I don't know. Because <laughs> um, there's, you know, and, you know, working some of that out, not all of it, certainly, but working some of what that looks like out there. Because really the threshold of of cultures as we evolve forward, uh, uh, you know, the stars is that first threshold. Uh, the discovery of alien life is another one, a profound one. That changes. That's going to change us when it happens, if it happens, and I think it's going to change the culture as well. So what you what you've set up between the Ganymede and the Tetrarchy and the the Consortium is this wonderful th- moment of thresholds. Having it be a YA story is perfect because that's what that's all about is crossing those thresholds. So so exploring those and pointing out the various positives and negatives and wonders of each is is going to i think enhance and escalate the stakes of these characters because there's so much awesome out there and and how are they going to be a part of that in some way i also had a minor thought just as far as justifying the attack uh, uh that i thought was very cool as a story element is to show uh, uh the young cadets at work um uh you know maybe uh uh these these gorillas have trackers on them or give off some sort of signature uh, uh, that Yeoman Heathers picks up and goes in and attacks them. Attack, you know, they the, the kids are walking along. They run to the girls. Hey, girls, what's going on? Hey, have some have some whiskey. Uh, and and Yeoman comes in and guns blazing and starts gunning them down. And it becomes this massive firefight. And you still get all of the the wonderful uh, trauma that is inflicted on Gina when she does so. And you also get to show you know. We can. It'll be a great story. Why did you attack these people? Well, they're a part of this organization. We we planted them with trackers when they were imprisoned, and they can't take it out or whatever. I don't know. Again, MacGuffin. But but that would that would solve that problem. So, holy face, mere holy crap, um, Giles, dude, this was awesome. Uh, uh, I hope you. I hope you're weighted down with literary gold at this point. Is that the case? 
It absolutely is. <laughs> Excellent. Well, then then here's the standing offer here at the roundtable. You write this thing and put it out in the world, whether it's it's a PDF on your website or, or an audiobook on Patio Books, your self-pub, small pub, indie pub, trad pub, whatever. Get it out in the world. And when you do, come back and let us know. And we will knight you. We will make you a space knight of the roundtable <laughs> podcast. That's the deal. Sounds like a plan. I'm down with that as well. Awesome. Peter Newman, sir, this has been a delight. Just just as we've we've been kind of circling each other for for a while now. It's delight to sit down and, and brainstorm with you. And you really brought some serious mojo to the discussion, and I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you so much, sir. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Uh and Michelle and Emily, uh uh I think this worked out well having multiple co-hosts. We got a lot of uh, different and diverse ideas coming into the story arc. Thank you both so much. This has been fun. Of course, it was lovely. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Absolutely. My pleasure. And friends, do check out the Beyond the Trope podcast at beyondthetrope.com. They are on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, Make that scene. Follow the arc of these three intrepid uh, storytellers as they pursue their craft uh, uh, and and the explorations and adventures that ensue. It's worth the listen. We talk a lot more on our own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Yes, they do. do. Well, it's your mic. You got that. That's how that works. Uh, and friends, as long as we're doling out gratitude, as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, uh, this, this, this is all for naught if, if we're not actually enlightening and inspiring other writers uh, uh, and sparking new ideas in their minds. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for the reviews on iTunes. If you haven't put one out there, that's awesome. Uh, no, that's not awesome. You should go out and put one out there right now. Uh, uh, but it is awesome that there are so many out there already. And thank you so much for that. We do have a forum on the Roundtable Podcast website now. So if you've got ideas for Giles, go ahead and toss them up there. We can continue this discussion out in the world. Blog about us, write about us, spread the word of the fabulosity that is the Roundtable Podcast. Uh, now, as awesome and exhausted as we all are at this point, in just seven days, we started all over again. Another courageous guest writer bringing their story idea to the table. Another awesome guest host filling our ears with wisdom. More roundtable fabulosity to be had. But that is seven days from now, and that's a lot of time. Emily, Michelle, thoughts on what our listeners should be doing until we fire this bad boy up again? Obviously, listen to more podcasts. <laughs> Ooh, um, and bring your ideas to the table, whatever table you have, whether it's friends, family, other writers, other creative types, have your own workshop. Yes, absolutely. We do not under any circumstances have a monopoly on the brainstorming workshop vibe. That's great advice. Find your writers group, find your people, find your tribe and sit down with them and brainstorm the hell out of your stories. You will find all manner of gloriosity evolving uh, as you do so. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you'll find what you're looking for. So if you set your sights on that top shelf blue label goodness, the, the bright package at the back of the tree, if you look for it, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. 
That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.